I have found out big news in depth for you. Good evening, and welcome to Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Tonight, we begin a four-part series on the sometimes complex legal aspects of LGBT relationships. Local family law attorney Akina Crocker from Terry Family Law will be with us to talk about domestic partnerships and marriage. And 60 years ago last month, President Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450 that directed all gay people employed by the federal government be fired as they were seen as a threat to national security. Our next guest is producing a documentary about this piece of our history that has remained largely invisible. Emmy Award-winning producer Josh Howard will be on to talk about his latest project, a documentary called The Lavender Scare. And finally, on tonight's Outbeat Youth segment, the LaFew Foxworthy family returns to Outbeat Radio to share a letter their son Daniel wrote to the United States Supreme Court supporting his two dads and urging them to overturn Proposition 8. We'll also have details about next month's Pride celebrations. All of this coming up right after your Outbeat Radio news for this Sunday, May 26th, 2013. I have found Outbeat Radio news, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. A new community survey is being conducted to better understand the needs of our local LGBTQI community. Colin Close, co-founder of F2M Sonoma County, is conducting the survey. When asked what prompted him to do this survey, Close said, I know there are a lot of queer folks in Sonoma County. We are plentiful, but do we feel connected? Do we know how to find each other? Do we understand and support each other's struggles for equal rights and social acceptance? And are we addressing the most critical needs and issues facing our communities? The survey is designed to help shed some light on these questions and provide useful information to individuals, community groups, nonprofits, and service providers seeking to make a difference. Before launching the survey, Close did some demographic research, and he found that a recent Gallup poll indicates that 4% of Californians identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Doing the math, that's nearly 20,000 LGBT people right here in Sonoma County. But Close isn't convinced that the survey tells the whole story. He said, frankly, I think the number's low. The 2010 U.S. Census shows that Sonoma County has the second highest concentration of gay and lesbian couples in California. San Francisco County ranked number one. And while we don't have an accurate count, I think it's safe to assume that we have at least 25,000 LGBTQI folks in Sonoma County. But he asked, where is everyone? And what are the most pressing issues facing our community? Close notes that Sonoma County was recently named the third most tolerant place in the United States by the Martin Prosperity Institute, which based its assessment in part on the U.S. Census data about the high concentration of gay and lesbian couples living here. While this sounds encouraging, Close points out that the large numbers do not necessarily result in a strong sense of unity, belonging, or well-being. He said, in fact, LGBTQI people feel isolated or they want to get involved in community-building efforts but are unsure of how to do so. You can learn more about this survey at www.f2msc.org. The 37th annual San Francisco International LGBT Film Festival, known as Frameline, returns June 20th through 30th, 2013. Several highly anticipated screenings at Frameline 37 include Travis Matthews and James Franco's Interior, Leather Bar, a film within a film that reimagines the lost 40 minutes of cruising while exploring the politics of portraying gay sex in cinema. 
The festival is also pleased to feature GOC, the first film adaption of a work by David Sedaris, and the much-talked-about award-winning love story Freefall, about two men who fall in love while serving in the German police academy. Also featured will be Malcolm Ingram's Continental, a documentary that gorgeously recreates the history of the famed New York bathhouse where Bette Midler and Barry Manilow performed early in their careers. Tickets go on sale to the general public this Friday, May 31st. You can learn more at frameline.org. Now here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Monday, May 27th at 7 p.m., PFLAG Sonoma County will meet at the Knox Presbyterian Church, 1650 West 3rd Street in Santa Rosa. And on Tuesday, May 28th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m., the Santa Rosa Senior Group will meet at the Glacier Center in Santa Rosa. And on Friday, May 31st at 7.30 p.m., the documentary Jen Silent will be screened at the Glacier Center. This is a film that explores lives and issues faced by LGBT seniors. There will be a discussion group that follows, and you can learn more at www.jensilent.com. And on Friday, May 31st at 8 p.m., the San Francisco Lesbian and Gay Freedom Band performs a show called Through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall remembering those who have sacrificed in the pursuit of liberty and equality for all Americans. The performance will take place at the Lutheran Church, 678 Portola Drive in San Francisco. Their performance is free of charge, and you can learn more at www.sflgfb.org. And on Saturday, June 1st, from 1 to 5 p.m., Beer Fest happens, a benefit for Face to Face, Sonoma County AIDS Network, at the Wells Fargo Center for the Arts. This is the 22nd anniversary of this event and will feature microbrews and food tastings, as well as live music by Rivetti and the Meatballs. Advanced tickets are $45, and you can learn more at www.f2f.org. And of course, Sonoma County Pride happens this coming weekend. With events starting in the evening of June 1st, it'll be Pride Comedy Night featuring Justin Lucas and Regina Stoops. Tickets are still on sale and available at wellsfargocenterarts.org. And then Sonoma County Pride happens the next day on Sunday, June 2nd in Guerneville with the annual parade down Main Street starting at 11 a.m. The festival follows immediately after the parade at the Guerneville Lodge. And be sure to come by the Outbeat Radio booth. We'll be taping our Live at Pride radio show and would love to have you join us on the air. And then this year's Interface service will happen the following Sunday on June 9th at 7 p.m. at the Center for Spiritual Living. And this year's service will feature live music performed by local singer-songwriter Bobby Joe Valentine. We have all of your 2013 Pride celebration information for events happening in Sonoma, Napa, and San Francisco all in one place. Just go to our website at outbeatnews.com. If you have news and event you'd like to share with our listeners, be sure to tell us about it by going to that same website, outbeatnews.com. And follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter for the latest LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. All right. Well, tonight we begin the first of a four-part series about the legal aspects of LGBT relationships and families. While we continue to keep our fingers crossed about marriage equality here in California, the reality is that our relationships are different in so many ways, especially in the eyes of the law. Kina Crocker is a local family law attorney with Terry Family Law here in Santa Rosa, and she begins her series with us tonight talking about marriage and domestic partnerships. Kina, welcome to Outbeat News In Depth. And before we get started, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself? 
Oh, my name is Kina Crocker, and I am with Terry Family Law. We practice exclusively family law in Santa Rosa and um, have a specialty in the area of domestic partnerships and issues that affect same-sex couples. Well, great. Well, this is the first in a four-part discussion about some of the legal aspects and considerations of LGBT relationships, you know, once they move beyond the dating phase. And in this first part, we're going to focus on formalizing relationships in a domestic partnership or marriage. And I know in particular older couples who may be coming into a relationship with assets from a previous relationship or from earlier in life may be concerned about how to protect these assets before saying, I do. And talk about prenuptial agreements and how they can best be used. Um, a prenuptial agreement can be effective in a domestic partnership and a same-sex marriage. Uh, it's essentially a contract that is entered into by two people. It spells out specifically what will happen to their assets in the event of a divorce. Um, prenuptial agreements, for example, can state specifically that a person's home is her separate property despite how the couple handles their finances with respect to that property. So what are your recommendations for couples that come into a relationship with assets? Do you think these are a good idea? I think it is a good idea um, <clears throat> if you consider the prenuptial agreement to to really make it clear uh, how you want those assets to be handled if something goes awry. Um, so I think, I think it's probably um, unusual to not already have assets when you're coming into a relationship with someone, um, depending on where you are in your life. And is this something that the two parties can sketch out for themselves, or should they? do you recommend that they work with an attorney? Um, in the, the land of prenuptial agreements, I do recommend uh, consulting with an attorney. There are very specific requirements um, that go into drafting a prenuptial agreement uh, in order for it to really stand up in a court of law down the road. You know, as I think about those and I think about my own relationship, it, it seems kind of mechanical and sort of takes away from, you know, the magic of a relationship. How comfortable is it from your experience in working with couples around putting that together? Is it something that's fairly common or is it more of an unusual move? Um, I, I completely understand, yes, it's a hard conversation to have with someone um, because you don't want to think about what could happen, uh, it, that divorce could actually happen. Um, but I've found that in most relationships that have the prenuptial agreement, it, it, it serves them well because... It, it's, it makes it so that you sit down and actually have this conversation about what could really happen, and it really puts forward um, the intentions that you have in this relationship. It also, if the divorce actually does happen, it makes things much easier and saves the parties quite a bit of money. Well, with the anticipated decision of the U.S. Supreme Court on Proposition 8 and the Defense of Marriage Act, you know, I'd imagine a lot of couples who didn't take advantage of being able to get married back in 2008 or at least thinking about it, and, of course, in California, we have domestic partnerships. Talk a little bit about the differences between a domestic partnership and a marriage in California. Um, domestic partnerships in California are no different than heterosexual marriage in California. Uh, the family code at Section 297.5A specifically states that registered domestic partners shall have the same rights, protections, and benefits and be subject to the same responsibilities, obligations, and duties under the law as are granted to and imposed upon spouses. Um, domestic partnerships, however, as we know, are different than heterosexual marriage federally uh, because there are 
1,138 rights and benefits that are provided at the federal level that we do not have. For example, um, Social Security benefits, uh, tax treatment regarding children, estate taxes. There are at least 179 references to the marital status in the tax code. So that poses a pretty important question for existing domestic partners who may be quite content with that arrangement. Let's just say that Prop 8 gets tossed out and marriages become legal and the Defense of Marriage Act gets tossed out. For couples that are in a committed relationship, they're, they're in this for the long haul. Do you recommend they get married then? Um, I think it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about what really that would mean if you were to get married. I don't know if the, the court would specify what would happen to domestic partnerships if if your scenario does become true, does that mean that your domestic partnership is automatically a marriage? Likely not. I would think you would have to actually go out and get married in order to obtain those benefits. Um, but I think it's probably a good idea to sit down and really talk about what the effect is going to be. The, I think the important thing then from what I'm hearing you say is that just because you're in a domestic partnership, if DOMA is in fact tossed out, it doesn't mean that you're going to automatically be entitled to all of those 1,138 benefits that you mentioned. In fact, it's likely that that wouldn't apply at all, right? This is all conjecture because we don't know really what the court would um, require, but it seems to me that you would have to physically go and get married in order to avail yourselves of those benefits. But then there's also the possibility that uh, maybe California would come up with a statute that says you're legally um, bound to each other with marriage rights as of the date you registered your domestic partnership. So we don't know at this point what will happen. Definitely something to pay attention to. So for now, we know that domestic partnerships are available. So for a couple that wants to firm up their relationship, commit to make a long-term commitment, what are the steps involved in actually securing a domestic partnership? Um, to register, it's pretty simple. You have to obtain and sign a declaration of domestic partnership from the Secretary of State's office. Um, this is different than getting a marriage license. You go to the county clerk for the marriage license. Um, you Basically, you sign the document. The two of you sign the document. You have it notarized. You pay the fee. And then you file the actual certificate with the Secretary of State's office. So there's nothing that's done at the county clerk's office. It's all done through the state. And that process would be akin to getting a marriage license, right? Yes, that is correct. So what about couples that would like to have some sort of a commitment ceremony or a religious ceremony? Are there any differences in planning that with a domestic partnership or an association with a domestic partnership as opposed to a marriage? There, the only difference, well, a religious ceremony or even a non-religious ceremony, any ceremony at all, um, those are not connected to the legality of your domestic partnership. It's the actual filing of the domestic partnership declaration that provides the rights and responsibilities under the law. The ceremony is not required. But to get married in California for heterosexual couples, the current rules that apply require, the, and this is the difference, both parties go to the actual county clerk's office. They're required to appear in person and bring a picture identification. Um, and then the marriage license itself that the people sign uh, is only valid for 90 days from the date of the issuance. So you have to take a further step to actually get your marriage solemnized, um, which means that a person has to perform some type of ceremony um, and then sign the license and send it to the county clerk. It doesn't have to be a religious ceremony, and uh, many county clerks perform the ceremonies in their offices. 
So hopefully when Prop 8 is tossed out, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed here, for couples then that want to go ahead and have a, a marriage ceremony, then whether or not they have an existing domestic partnership or not, the steps would include going down to the, to the clerk's office, filing for the marriage license, and then they do have to have some sort of a ceremony or process to solemnize the the wedding or the marriage, right? That's, yes, that is correct. That's uh, the, the steps that are required. And if, and if I'm not mistaken, it doesn't have to be a religious ceremony, but there are some restrictions as to who can perform those ceremonies, right? Yes, that's correct. And um, on the county clerk's website, you can actually find out there's a list of people who can perform those particular ceremonies. Um, in my instance, when I was legally married in 2008, in that small window that we had, uh, the mayor of Sacramento was the one who performed our ceremony. And essentially, the questions were, do you agree to take this person as your um, lawfully wedded spouse? That's the type of thing that you hear about all the time. Sounds a lot more magical than signing a domestic partnership to me. So what about couples who got married in another state or even in another country where same-sex marriage is already legal? If Proposition 8 gets tossed, could they get remarried here in California? Well, essentially we look to, and again, you know, we don't know exactly what the court would rule in terms of, in terms of this issue, obviously. But um, when I look to the full faith and credit idea of recognizing other states' marriages and recognizing other states' laws. Um, if a couple is married in another state or country, and if California allows same-sex marriage, I would think there would be no need to remarry here because that marriage would be recognized by California under full faith and credit. Um, a couple with a domestic partnership right now can uh, – not right now, but a couple with domestic partnership can get married in California um, – like I did in 2008 when it was available. Um, my domestic partnership is valid, and my my marriage is valid in, Calif in California only. Um, and right now, my domestic partnership is seen at the federal level as a commitment to community property rules, and that affects how taxes are filed um, where we are required to split community property income on the federal returns. So I, to answer your question, I think that California, in our hopeful scenario, um, California would just recognize out-of-state marriages and treat it as a marriage for California purposes and for federal purposes if DOMA falls. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Kina, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking with you more about how to deal with property and assets in the next segment. Thank you very much for having me. If you would like more information about the topics we discussed tonight or to get in contact with Kina Crocker, you can go to their website at www.familylawsonomacounty.com. Well, the decade following World War II brought a Cold War to the United States. The threat of communists infiltrating the federal government was a growing fear, and Senator Joseph McCarthy started a campaign to rid the nation of this threat. But when he didn't find the communists he believed were present, he created another threat, gay people. Sexual perverts, as they were known, then posed a threat that led President Dwight D. Eisenhower to order the firing of all gay people from the government through Executive Order 10450 that he signed on April 27, 1953. And as a result, over 5,000 people lost their jobs, a fact that has been largely invisible in history books until now. And joining us now is the 24-time Emmy Award-winning producer, Josh Howard, who's producing a fascinating documentary about this missing piece of our history called the Lavender Scare. Josh, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Well, thank you. Thanks for, uh, for having me. Well, we appreciate your time. Tell us about this project, The Lavender Scare. 
Well, uh, The Lavender Scare is a documentary about a part of our history that very few people know anything about. It, uh, the term refers to a period in the 1950s when it was believed that gay men and lesbians were, were a threat to the security of the country. What was happening was, in the years after World War II, Russia, which had been our ally during, during the war, was quickly becoming our enemy, and uh, uh, the tensions were really developing between, uh, between us, and it developed into what's now known as the, uh, the Cold War. There was concern that uh, Russian communists were infiltrating our government, particularly a Senator Joseph McCarthy was, was, was pushing this point. When it, when it turned out that there really were not very many uh, communists in our government and his, his campaign was losing traction, he shifted his focus to uh, the issue of homosexuals in government. And although there weren't many communists, there were many gay people who were, who were working for the government at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, McCarthy very uh, effectively, with his supporters, managed to demonize gay people and make the point that because of their uh, lifestyle, they were uh, susceptible to blackmail by enemy agents and were, uh, were a threat to security. And that really launched what, uh, what became known as the Lavender Scare, the, um, the campaign to get uh, gay men and lesbians out of the federal government. Wow. And, you know, that's a part of history that clearly was missing uh, in my high school history classes. I don't ever remember anything about, you know, this witch hunt for gay people. Certainly we talked about McCarthy and, and the hunt for communists, but never was there any mention about, you know, a hunt for homosexual people or Eisenhower's order. Well, with, with all that's been written about the Cold War, it's really difficult to find any mention of this very important uh, aspect of the story. One of the reasons is that when this was going on, it was in nobody's interest to talk about it. The uh, gay people who were being fired from their jobs wanted to keep it quiet. They were still in the closet. They were hoping to get other employment, so they didn't want to talk about why they were being fired by the government. And the government didn't want to talk about it because then critics would say, well, why'd you hire all these you know, horrible people in the first place? So it uh, it really was something that uh, that was going on completely behind the scenes. The other reason, though, is it is just this is a prime example of the way in which uh, LGBT history is uh, completely marginalized in the in the telling of American history. Uh, you just don't find uh, in the history books the the stories of the struggles and and contributions of of gay people, right. and that's. It's, that's another reason we're, we're doing this. You know, one of our early supporters is, uh, uh, was Jim Hormel, the former ambassador uh, to Luxembourg, right. who is a big proponent of preserving gay history, He's a big supporter of the San Francisco uh, uh, Gay History Project. And um, he, he really has, uh, he, he makes the point that if LGBT people and, uh, and our allies don't preserve this history, no one else is going to, because obviously no one else ever has. And uh, it's, uh, it's really one of the reasons that we're so excited about this project. Right. Well, and it is a really exciting time in LGBT history. And I was thinking back last month when I saw the article about the 60th anniversary of, that, of the day that uh, Eisenhower signed the order uh, directing that all LGBT people be fired from government jobs. 
and then to be listening to President Obama talking about employment non-discrimination and inclusion and then seeing Don't Ask, Don't Tell fall. I mean, it really has come full so- circle, hasn't it? Well, it's it's almost full circle. Right. It, uh, uh, it's, it's obviously uh, 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 terrific that we've made the progress that we have, but uh, the fact is we are still talking about trying to pass a, a federal uh, a bill. Uh, in fact, there are there are 29 states in which it is still completely legal to fire people just based on their sexual orientation or, or gender identity. Uh, and it happens. Uh, you know, it happens every day, which is why we still need uh, 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 you know, f- further protections. And ENDA on the, uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act on the federal level will, uh, will certainly uh, go a long way to doing that. So we've, we've made tremendous uh, progress, but uh, we've we got to keep going. There's still, uh, there's still issues, uh, obviously, to, uh, to address. Definitely. Well, hopefully this documentary will, will continue the conversation around that. Uh, your background is, is really quite broad. I mean, you're a, a 24-time Emmy Award-winning producer. Talk about what in your background brought you to this project and or what your motivation is. Well, I, I spent many years at, uh, at CBS News working for the, uh, uh, the broadcast 60 Minutes, both as, as a producer and then later on as a, uh, as a manager. And one of the great thrills of, uh, of working on a, a, a program like that is finding a story that people don't know about that has social significance and being able to uh, disseminate that story to, to a broad audience. And um, I just stumbled uh, upon a book by David Johnson, a terrific historian, uh, called The Lavender Scare. I found it actually five years after it had been published. And... I, I was just riveted because it was obviously a fascinating story and one that I knew nothing about. In talking to some friends and other people who, who study gay history, they really were not aware of the extent uh, to which the government went after gay people. And I just felt this was a, uh, a, a natural, like that all those old 60 Minutes feelings came back about uh, what a great story. There were great characters, and they could make a real contribution. Um, uh, I, I tracked uh, I tracked down David, uh, who uh, agreed to uh, to get on board, and um, and we've been working on it ever since. It's, uh, it's I was I was actually working as a, I was a vice president of documentary production at CNBC when I when I came across this book, and uh, I left that job to uh, to work on this project because it just seemed uh, so compelling. Wow. Well, you mentioned 60 Minutes, and I remember seeing a, a 1967 piece with Mike Wallace talking about homosexuals. And when you go back and you watch that and, and really listen to what he's saying and, and the discussion around the deviance and the criminality and the threat that was still present in it's still very present in 1967, uh, it's, it's really, really amazing the difference in thought and understanding of who LGBT people are. Well, it, it is. Uh, it, it is amazing. And, you know, that was really a result of this uh, campaign, really, by the federal government, by our own government, to demonize LGBT people. Uh, it, uh, we are going to be using some, some clips of, the, uh, of that CBS Reports program. It, uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't done for 60 Minutes. It was a, uh, a separate documentary. And um, having worked with Mike Wallace in later years, I can tell you that he... Uh, he regretted having reported that story in the way in the way that he had, but uh, that was 
that was the public opinion. Now, a big chunk of that documentary uh, relied on a uh, survey that CBS News conducted, and it was a very accurate reflection of where, where public opinion was at the time. Right. Talk about what your hopes are for this documentary once it's released out there. What would you like to see happen? Certainly, as, as, as we said before, we would love for it to make a contribution to the, um, the, the effort to expand uh, employment laws uh, to protect LGBT people. But it also, uh, you know, we really wanted to fill this, uh, this gap in our history. It's difficult to know where you're going if, if you don't know where you've been. And um, uh, I really find that young people uh, particularly are not, are not familiar with this, uh, this period in our, in our history. One of the interesting aspects of this is, is that the, the Lavender Scare, this period in the 50s, followed a period uh, that was much more uh, permissive and, and hospitable to, to LGBT people. In the 1930s and 40s, uh, Washington, D.C. particularly, had a, a very open and, uh, and, and vibrant gay community. And uh, to, to some degree, uh, that's what set the stage for the backlash that, uh, uh, that our opponents were able to exploit so effectively in the 1950s, and uh, as, as much progress as we've made, and it's, it's, it's terrific to see that pro progress, we also have to be uh, vigilant and remember that uh, the, the pendulum can swing both ways, and uh, without knowing our history, it's, it's, it's difficult to, uh, uh, to understand that. One of the other things we really want to do is pay tribute to, to the people who lived through this, uh, this history, and whose efforts and commitment over the years really contributed to making this a, a better world for the generations that followed. Sure. Um, to, to, a, to a large part, uh, the Lavender Scare was really the beginning of the gay rights movement when uh, people began to, uh, to resist. And I, I think uh, we really want to preserve that for the record as well. Right. Yeah, and you mentioned a lot of young people don't know. If it's not written in the history books, they're never going to find out unless they have a chance to see a documentary like this and to learn about people like Frank Kameny. I mean, what a courageous man he was. Well, I mean, he's, he's just unbelievable. And uh, he, he was fired. He was a Harvard Ph.D., a Ph.D. in astronomy, working for the Army Map Service in 1967 when he was called in by his supervisors and told he was being fired because he was gay. And at that point, probably 5,000 people had been fired for, you know, their own reasons, many of them very understandable. They, they went quietly. Frank was the first person to say, no, this is wrong. This is not a reason that I should lose my job. And uh, as he told us, he very naively, in the first couple of years after this firing, went about appealing his decision through first administrative channels and then through the courts, and he was completely convinced that people were going to see his, his point and this would all be over. And, of course, we know that that, that wasn't the, uh, the case. But it really launched uh, Frank uh, and some other uh, individuals, uh, Jack Nichols, who worked closely with him through the years, really launched, launched the – it ignited a, a feeling of militancy and, and anger within the, the gay community that hadn't existed before and uh, really did sow the seeds for the, uh, for the gay rights movement. In uh, 1965, Frank and a small group of people staged a picket in front of the White House 
objecting to this federal policy. And it really is uh, seen now as the first public gay rights demonstration, um, uh, obviously years before before Stonewall. And uh, the, the nice thing about uh, the, the story about Frank is that he really lived to see changes uh, in how society treated uh, gay people. He was, he eventually received an official apology from from the U.S. government. Too late, obviously, to get his uh, his, his job back. Right. Uh, he was honored by President Obama, and um, uh, it was really a, a a storybook ending for him. He could finish his his life knowing that this battle that that he started had uh, real results, and really, it's not an overstatement to say it changed the world. Most definitely. You left, you know, an important job to take this project on. Talk about some of the challenges that you faced in, in getting it done. Well, initially the challenges were finding the people to interview. David Johnson, who I mentioned, who wrote the book The Lavender Scare, did most of his research during the 1990s. Luckily, he has uh, a couple of hundred hours of taped interviews with people with firsthand knowledge of this. But our challenge was to find people who were still alive, frankly, to, uh, to talk about it. And um, we were thankfully able to do that. We spent a lot of time with uh, Frank Kameny uh, before he passed away. We also were able to interview people really on both sides of, uh, of the story. I'm, I'm very lucky to be working with uh, one of the best producers and researchers in the business, a wonderfully talented woman named Jill Landis, another 60 Minutes, uh, uh, former colleague from 60 Minutes, who has just tracked down uh, people with fascinating first-hand stories. Particularly, she's, she's been able to locate former government officials who were responsible for putting this policy in place and then enforcing it. And hearing about this from their perspective for the first time ever has, um, uh, has really given this project a, uh, a depth that uh, we think is, uh, is very important. I'm curious, when you talked with some of those government officials now in 2000. 12 or 13, whenever those conversations took place, what was their attitude or what was their response about the work they were doing and hunting out and firing LGBT people back in the 50s and 60s? Well, Greg, that's such an interesting question because that uh, now that these guys, as you say, have the perspective of time, uh, we were very curious to hear what they would say. And uh, we spoke to one agent who, uh, who was responsible for investigating people, and he looked into the camera and said, if anybody out there is listening, for all those people whose you know, lives I know I ruined, uh, I just want to apologize. And it was a very emotional moment. We interviewed another guy who is the head of security for a federal agency who said uh, he believes he did the right thing then and he would do the same thing now, that this was his patriotic duty, it was the position of the government, and he would be as energetic today in tracking down and investigating gay people as, as he was back then. Um, wow. He said, yeah, he said, I, I know society has, uh, has changed its position, but I haven't. And uh, it was just very interesting to hear his, his perspective on this. Well, we have some of the audio from the movie's trailer that contains some of the interviews that you just mentioned. Take a listen. We have your friend in the next room. She's already told us that you're gay. You give us the names of others and we'll go easier on you. 
please come to order. Homosexuals must not be handling top secret material. The pervert is easy prey to the blackmailer. I was called to the FBI office. They wouldn't allow legal representation. I was a scared kid. They wouldn't reveal the evidence. They said, we have information, you are homosexual. Do you have any comment? And they would threaten exposure. I submitted my resignation. I lost my job at the patent office. That was the end of it, I would have. The people that I got rid of, they were faggots. I didn't give a hoot. Put them on a bread line. Culturally, we were sick, sinners, sexual perverts. We were worse than communists. We knew that. Wow, it, it sounds just fascinating. Talk about where you are with the project now and how the film is being funded. We're grateful the Ford Foundation has been the big supporter, and Jim Hormel, as I mentioned. But um, that really is our, our, our big challenge now. We have finished shooting. We have all the interviews we need, all the material. But uh, two of the most expensive parts of the project still lie ahead, and that's editing and creating graphics, and uh, most significantly, licensing the archival information, the archival material, video, film, still pictures that we need to tell the story. So that's why we're embarking on, uh, uh, we've been raising money through Kickstarter and, uh, and uh, other means. Yeah, because this is this project is backed by you. It's not coming from a major network or or cable organization, right? Well, that, that's that's correct. Uh, we're asking people who who agree with us that this story deserves to be told to uh, to help us out. And anything yeah between uh, one dollar and the limit on a credit card is uh, is what we'll be happy to accept. Uh, but you do make a good point. This is not financed by a network, by a studio. It is really a grassroots effort financed by people who care about the subject matter and want to see this film made. So tell us where people can go to learn more about the documentary, The Lavender Scare, and also to make a contribution to help out. Well, the, uh, uh, the website is the best place to go. It's uh, the, thelavenderscare.com uh, or just lavenderscare.com. Either, either one will take you to our website. There you'll see a link that says uh, Donate Now. By clicking that, uh, it takes you to a form. You can donate by credit card right online, or there's an address to, to send a check. And obviously we're thrilled with uh, any support uh, we receive. We really are depending on people who agree that this is an, an important story to be told to, uh, to support this project. Great. And if you missed that, that website, we'll have it on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page, and you'll find a link to support the Lavender Scare. Well, that's terrific. We really, uh, we really appreciate it. it. It is gratifying that we have gotten so much support from the community and uh, people who really do see the, the, uh, the point that this story is part of our history, it's part of American history, and it's been overlooked for, for way too long. It's important work. Well, Josh Howard, thank you so much for all the work in, in recording and memorializing this part of our history. And I look forward to seeing the documentary once it's out on the big screen. Well, thank you, Greg, and thank you for your interest in the project. It's, uh, it, it is really appreciated. So thank you very much. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCBFM, Santa, Windsor, Santa Rosa. It's time now for our Outbeat Youth segment. And uh, Jay Foxworthy and Brian LeFew are two typical dads raising an extraordinary family and who are doing some amazing work to educate the rest of the world about 
a regu- the regularity of an LGBT family. You may know them from their YouTube channel, Gay Family Values, and from a documentary they were featured in called A Right to Love an American Family. And last night, or last month rather, their son Daniel wrote a letter to the United States Supreme Court urging the justices to overturn Proposition 8. And they're here with us tonight, Brian and his son Daniel, to talk more about that letter and some of the work that they're doing. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's great to have you here. Uh, Since you were on with us last time when we were getting ready to premiere uh, the documentary that you were featured in, Tell us what happened with that premiere and since then. Well, um, we've been all over the place with the movie. We've been, I don't yeah, the, It premiered at the Castro Theater, which was yeah. a fantastic place for it, for it to premiere at. No, uh, no, we had no. a really good turnout then. And since then, it's been traveling around the country. We've been to showings at New York, Los Angeles, Portland, um, several places. It's it's been really kind of a whirlwind year for the movie and for our family. Um, and since then, it's uh, been really well received, and hopefully, is making it not just out there to film festivals, but where we really wanted it to go to people's local churches and youth groups. So it's been really successful. We're very happy. Well, I remember that premiere in the Castro. And I remember the big red carpet, and your whole family was there, and people yeah. were posing with you. That was pretty cool, that huh? That was awesome. It was really good. And you got to go to New York, Daniel? That was probably my one of my most favorite moments. What was what was special about that? Uh knowing that I was in New York that my movie was that our movie was being shown there. And I always loved New York, like Ever since I was a little kid. Yeah, he had always it said, when can we go to New York? I would love to go to New York. And we were standing in Times Square, and he was just spinning in circles with his eyes as wide as dinner plates. That's great. And yeah. I remember seeing you and your sister, Selena, and you look like movie stars in San yeah. Francisco. It was pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it was. And the documentary that we were just talking about is not the only uh, role that you play. Your family has a YouTube channel that you started some time ago. Remind us, Brian, about... Um, family values. Well, it began during Prop 8 um, because we were watching the commercials that were airing at the time and becoming frustrated that they wouldn't show any actual gay people, let alone gay families. And so, you know, we decided that maybe we should make a little video and put it on YouTube. And I kind of said it jokingly around the table. And Jay said, yeah, that's a great idea. Let me go get the camera. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I was kidding. But um, we made that first video and we put it up and it was really just our family eating dinner around the table just to kind of show people that this is what gay marriage was going to affect our family and our children. You know, it wasn't about the – excuse me, about teaching gay marriage in schools or forcing different churches to marry gay people. None of that stuff was true. It was really about how it affects real people and real families. And since then, it has grown into some 400-plus videos and – you know, several thousand subscribers, and we're still going strong. And you're and you're getting feedback from people from all over the world. Absolutely. I think, in fact, the last time uh, we had you on the air, there was a couple visiting you, a couple young people that were visiting you that had been inspired by your videos, right? Yeah, one was from Peru. Right. Um, we we literally had people from all over the world. You know, Brazil and England and just everywhere. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. But it's so great because you truly are an inspiration to folks. You're you're an example of what life could be. Well, you know, we kind of look at it as we're really just 
one family that's, you know, because there's lots of families out there like us. You know, it sort of shocks us and surprises us that people are are that blown away by it because we know there's so many families out there like ours, you know, and we're just trying to be the voice for that segment of people that you don't hear from all the time. Right. So, Daniel, what's it like for you to be on film so often now and on the Internet all over the place? Well, when we first started, I was excited, but and at times it was kind of frightening knowing that I people know us, like people that I don't know. But now it's just become a normal thing with me. Yeah, you're okay with Dad coming out with that camera all the time? It doesn't get in the way? It gets, I get used to it. You get used to it? It's yeah. kind of like being on the real world on MTV or one of those reality shows, huh? Yeah. Very good. Well, tell us about this letter that you wrote to the Supreme Court. What gave you the idea to write? Uh, um, <clears throat> it started around breakfast, and that my dad were talking about the whole gay marriage issue and with the Supreme Court. And then they, they told um, me that Justice John Roberts adopted two kids. And when I heard that, I thought it would be a good idea to write a letter to him since we, meaning Selena, were adopted, to write him a letter showing him that our family was a lot like his. Fantastic. Yeah. And you sent that letter off, and so we're mm-hmm. going to wait to see if he read Respond. the letter and, and will respond to it, yeah, right? We're crossing our fingers. We haven't heard anything yet. No. Yeah, I've got my fingers crossed as well. I, I think some of the best news would be at the end of June, you know, when they come yeah. out with a good decision. Uh, and so you've brought the letter with us tonight. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind, why don't you read that for our listeners who may not be familiar with it? Okay. So I'll start. Okay. Dear Justice Roberts, my name is Daniel martinez Sofia. I'm 12 years old, and I live in Northern California. I have a younger sister named Selena, and we were adopted by two dads. We were adopted when I was five, and my sister was about 12 months old. When I was in foster care, I was told that I was considered unadoptable because of my golden heart syndrome. That is a genetic disorder that affects the whole left side of my body. I lost my little brother, Emilio, because some people wanted to adopt him, but they weren't willing to adopt me because of my medical conditions. Lucky for me, that's when my two dads came along. I recently found out that you yourself adopted two kids, a boy and a girl, kind of like me and my dad, me and my sister. Family means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but some people believe that you have to have the same blood to be a family. You and I both know that family goes deeper than blood. I was lucky to be adopted by two guys I can both call dad. They give me and my sisters so much love. My dad, Jay, works in San Francisco as a deputy sheriff. And my dad, Brian, stays at home and takes care of me and my sisters. My dad really encouraged me to excel in life. Since I want to be a cook when I grow up, they're letting me take cooking classes. My parents want me to improve whether it's schoolwork or my social life. I know you have a tough decision to make with the gay marriage issue, but my family is just as valuable and worthwhile as any other. It's especially tough for you because I know you don't necessarily believe in gay marriage religiously. Lucky for us, though, you also don't believe in taking away a right, even from people like us. My family and I have spent the last four years making YouTube videos to show people who, who don't understand that our family is like any other. 
If propate is allowed to stand, imagine the pain we will feel knowing that we are not considered equal to everyone else. I guess to end this, it is important that all families are protected and valued. In our country, we may not all be the same, but we are all Americans and deserve an equal chance at bettering our lives. I hope you make the right decision in the end. Wow. The end. Wow. It's very, very impressive, Daniel. Yeah. Really impressive. So talk about some of the places that you've had a chance to read that letter. I've read it at um, a San Francisco rally. We did a march there from the Castle all the way to the City Hall, and I got invited to speak there. And that was really cool, kind of n- nerve-wracking, <laughs> speaking in front of 2,000 people. And that was the night before the Supreme Court heard yeah. the case, right? That was, yeah, that was a busy day for me. I bet it was a busy day for you. You said there were about 2,000 people or so there, huh? Yeah. About. Yeah. Were you nervous getting up in front of all those folks on City Hall steps? Yeah. But. I was nervous for him, <laughs> you know, but he got up there and read that letter like a champ. I was yeah. so impressed. That's cool. And then I got to be on some news stations like CNN and MSNBC. And I got to be on some radio stations. I got put in the in our local newspaper. That's right. Press Democrat. And I got to a chance to speak at Bay's uh, youth organization. It's a Bay Area uh, Youth Summit. Youth Summit, yeah. And he got to be one of the speakers along with Dustin Lance Black. And oh, Zach wow. Walls. Yeah, that was So cool. you got to meet both of them. Yeah. Yeah, Zach was on our show a few months back. And now I'm here. Yes, you are. That's really great. Really amazing. So what was it like to be on national television? That was probably, besides the um, March, that was one of the most terrifying things for me. (laughs) Really? So a lot of people have seen you, you know, not just now on the YouTube channel, but, you know, on, on the news. What have your friends at school said? Well, I... During that time, I became a little celebrity. Not that long, but it was nice. But your friends accepted you? Yeah, they didn't. They're very open. That's really, really great. No one gave me a hard time. And have you ever been bullied at all for... I have, but not for having two gay dads. Wow. It's been my disabilities, but nothing about my gay dad. So that's... Well... That's, that's showing that we're making some progress with the work that you all are doing as a family. Yeah. That's great. That is fantastic. Um, so I learned recently that you've been selected to be Grand Marshals in the San Francisco Pride Parade this year. Yeah, yeah. we sure have. Tell us a little about that, Brian. Um, well, we were kind of shocked. We found out on the day we were at the Bay Area Youth Summit when we got the Facebook message saying, hey, we're thinking about having you guys uh, be Grand Marshals for the parade. You know, we've marched in plenty of parades, and we've stood on the sidelines and waved. And so this year we get to be one of the big wigs and ride in a fancy mm-hmm. car and wave everybody. So it's going to be a lot of fun. That's great. And and they acknowledge a lot of the work that you've done to promote equality, particularly around the marriage issue and, and the education you're doing. On Absolutely, the and right? that's humbling by itself, you know. I mean, it's it's you, we get a lot of responses from people every day, but this it's – Still something to to be recognized for that kind of work. Yeah. That's great. So you're looking forward to being in the parade, Daniel? Yeah, I am. Very good. You got your parade wave down? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. 
Brian, talk about the future of gay family values and, and what you see, even for the documentary. Where's it all going to go from here? Well, it began with Prop 8, and we had no vision for gay family values beyond Prop 8 when we first started. So now when we're at the Supreme Court decision where it may completely invalidate Prop 8, we, we're in a completely different place with gay family values. You know, It's taken on a life of its own to where there are people who are watching our family grow and they're becoming a part of our family just by you know, seeing us for the last few years. You know, and so we're going to keep going. You know, Hopefully one day maybe the kids will take over the channel and they'll see a same-sex family from the point of view of the kids that were raised in one. And it'll be their voice that will get to be out there. But uh, until then, we'll keep doing our thing. That's great. And I think that that's a great outlook on it because even if Prop 8 does get tossed out, we still don't have marriage equality across the country. Yeah. We still haven't achieved full equality in, in all regards. There's still couples that struggle with adoption, for example. And Absolutely, and there are still people who think that the children raised by two men or two women will grow up damaged in some way, and we're here to say that that's absolutely not true. You know, our kids grow up to be happy, healthy, and strong, and we'll, we'll put our lives on the line for that. That's fantastic. We've got a few minutes, and I know that you got a chance this weekend, if I can ask about your trip to Sacramento. Oh, my goodness, yeah. yeah. We, yeah. we reached out to Daniel's and uh, my daughter Selena's biological brothers and sisters because when our adoption finalized, we had zero information about them. We had no pictures, nothing but a printed-out paper of a family tree that had their first names and ages on them. And Daniel and Selena said, hey, you know, we've been looking at this family tree. Can you help us find our brothers and sisters? So we began the search for that, which turned out to be, you know, easier said than done when that's all you have. And we, we had a good friend that helped us find their last names and their ages and I just started sending out Facebook messages to all the people whose last names lined up. <laughs> and fortunately, um, one person did respond back to us who turned out to be her their actual biological older sister. And she had the original photos for them that were uh, the very first photos we ever saw of Daniel and Selena in their adoption papers. So we we figured, okay, this is the real thing. And we went forward and met them for the first time at a restaurant and – how did that make you feel, Daniel? Um, when we first got the message, I was like, no, this isn't happening. And as like it came closer, I got um, more used to it, or so I thought, because when I saw them, I completely shut down because it was... It was a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. Overwhelming, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so, understandable. Yeah. And you're going to get the chance to see them again? Yeah, hopefully. Wow. That's great. I mean, you really just epitomize what family is all about here, and that's and that's fantastic. Yeah, our family just got a little bigger is all. Yeah. That's terrific. That is absolutely terrific. So are you going to be out at Sonoma County Pride next uh, weekend? We will definitely try to be. <laughs> it, it's always a good time to go out to Pride. So we get to go out there with all the kids in the strollers and, you know, see, yeah. have some fun and see people we know. It's it, Yeah. Yeah, that'll be great. We're going to be out there taping a live radio show. Uh, at the festival after the parade. So hopefully you'll have a chance to come by the Outbeat Radio booth and say hi to and meet some of the listeners who might be able to stop by and who have heard you tonight. Absolutely. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Well, I want to thank you both for taking your, your holiday weekend. You don't have school tomorrow, huh, Daniel? Yeah. Very good. Uh, and thank you both for joining us tonight on Outbeat Radio. Thank you. Thank you.
And that brings us to the end of our hour. But before I go, I want to be sure to remind you to join us next Sunday at Sonoma County Pride in Guerneville. The parade starts at 11 a.m. and the festival will follow at the Guerneville Lodge. I'll be there with the rest of the Outbeat team taping a live radio show from our booth, so be sure to stop by and join us on the air. And remember, we have all of the information about Pride celebrations happening in Sonoma, Napa, and San Francisco throughout the month of June on our website at OutbeatNews.com. I'll be back on the fourth Sunday of June with our annual Pride show with two very special local guests who had their first date in a bar right across the street from the Stonewall Inn 44 years ago on the night of the Stonewall Riots. They'll be here to share their memories from that night when gay pride celebrations were born. Tune in next Sunday night to Outbeat Radio for Living Proof and our live at Sonoma County Pride special with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond. 